Dayeno is a Hebrew word translated to mean it would have been enough. In ancient times, they said, Dayeno, it would have been enough to have been spared after the plagues. It would have been enough to have been freed from slavery. It would have been enough to have had food in the desert. Now we question, when will it be enough again? Dayeno. Will it be enough to keep our distance? Will it be enough to wear a mask? Will it be enough to keep us well in the midst of plague that has not passed over? Now we wonder, worry, wish for answers. Dayenu, it would have been enough, and it will be enough again. If the story of Passover is told and teaches us how to live in this time, it will be enough. If the stories of our ancestors bring us hope for tomorrow, it will be enough. If we join together in remembering that we all come from people who have survived again and again, it will be enough this year as it is each year. Dayeno, it will be enough that we are together here today. Come, let us worship together. talked about the first three sources that we as Unitarian Universalists draw on for inspiration and enlightenment. The first source is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder. Our second source of inspiration is the words and deeds of prophetic people. Our third source is the wisdom from the world's religions which inspires us in our ethical and our spiritual lives. And our fourth source is this, the Jewish and Christian teachings which call us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. This fourth source is a bit more problematic for me than the first three sources have been. First, it lists only two of the faiths of the Abrahamic tradition, and it feels like an omission to me to include Judaism and Christianity without the Islamic tradition. My second concern has to do with the statement that we respond to God's love by loving our neighbor as ourselves. There's a part of me that wonders whether this is not a Christocentric understanding of Judaism. The command to love our neighbors is not one of the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And while it is included in some of the texts, it is not highlighted above other passages that address how people are in terms of their relationship with God. This is confirmed by Jewish scholars who state that the emphasis on love is a Christian one, not a Jewish one. I think we miss the mark with this fourth source. Our wording is not quite as good as it could be. 
But that doesn't mean I don't believe that the Abrahamic traditions are important. I think that they comprise one of our fundamental sources. There are lessons and beliefs that come from the way we experience the world that are founded in our Abrahamic roots. So I'm gonna take us back today to the story of Exodus that you've already heard mentioned twice in the service already. This is a tale that's rich in metaphor and meaning and which has shaped us. The story begins over 3,000 years ago when the Pharaoh of Egypt forces descendants of Abraham into slavery and drowns, out all their new, drowns all their newborn boys to reduce the population size. Pharaoh's daughter finds a baby floating in the river, like Margaret told us before. She saves him, and she names him Moses. Moses grows up in the royal household, but ends up fleeing home after he kills an Egyptian overseer who is beating a Hebrew slave. And while in hiding, Moses encounters God in a burning bush and is told to return to Egypt and lead the Hebrews to freedom to the land of Canaan. Pharaoh refuses to release the Israelites, the Hebrew people, and so God curses the Egyptians with terrible plagues, ranging from a river of blood to an outbreak of frogs and more. Still enslaved after nine plagues, God finally instructs the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and daub its blood on their doorpost and observe a Passover meal. And that night of the full moon, the 10th plague arrives, causing the death of all firstborn sons in those homes not daubed with the lamb's blood. The Israelites then flee in the night, taking nothing with them, until they come to the Red Sea, which blocks their passage, until it is parted by Moses. I don't know if how many people here remember that great movie of parting of the Red Sea. And then it closes down on them, pursuing, it closes down on the pursuing army, drowning Pharaoh's armies. Freed from Egypt, the Hebrews spent the next 40 years traveling through the desert. They miraculously received manna to eat and water to drink, but the journey is arduous and the people become tired and they become contentious. At times they look for another God to lead them, and at times they rebel against Moses. And there are repeated punishments from God to keep them in line, and at times even Moses and God disagree with each other. It is during this time in the desert that God dictates the Ten Commandments to Moses, and Mo Moses constructs the tabernacle, a holy dwelling place for God so he can travel and live among his people. Finally, after a whole generation, they come to the River Jordan and all enter the Promised Land, all except Moses, who God forbids from entering due to their previous arguments together. There are so many rich stories to be had from this story of the Exodus. There are so many parts that would be worth talking about and exploring. What about that burning bush? that gave instructions to Moses. What was that about? And what about God's choice of Moses to lead the Hebrews, a man with a pronounced speech defect and a bad temper? And do the 10 plagues 
seem just or fair or just maybe a bit severe? And is there a lesson to be learned from the Hebrew slaves fleeing in the night, taking nothing with them except the faith that they would somehow be taken care of? But the principal story that has captivated people for thousands of years is the metaphor of living in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering lost on their journey before entering the promised land of milk and honey. Now, it has been estimated that the straight-line distance between Egypt and Canaan can be walked in 11 days. When we read the Torah description of the people fleeing Egypt, we learn that they were not taken on the straight path. Rather, they wandered on a crooked path. At the very onset of their fleeing, they headed in the wrong direction, away from Canaan. The rabbi, Corey Heflin, points out that in life, obviously, the straight road is preferred to the crooked. We use the metaphor of the straight path versus the crooked path in our ethical teachings, and it makes sense strategically and physically as well. But the Torah makes it clear that the Israelites were not on the obvious route. They were ambivalent about their journey toward freedom. The exodus from Egypt is laden with challenges, and it is not clear that people are even up to the journey. They complain, they fight, they rebel, they look for other leaders and another god to worship, and they even wonder if they would have been better off staying in Egypt, staying in slavery. This story is the great metaphor of life, the journey that we are all on. We all are on the path to learn how to be free. Each of us has lessons to learn. We each have past experiences that can enslave us and bind us. The journey to freedom is hard. We may be reluctant to try something new. We veer into uncharted territory. We stray from our comfort zones, all at the risk of traveling a path that is less familiar, less comfortable. This life journey is filled with anxiety uncertainty, isn't it? There's a long way and a short way through the wilderness on the dangerous, overwhelming journey through the desert. And we might desire the easier direct route, but the lesson of Exodus is that the long, crooked path is ultimately the one that prepares us. It is the journey that makes the difference in our lives, not the destination. We all have desert journeys. Sometimes these are real events, such as those fleeing the dangers of their homes and towns in Haiti, El Salvador, Somalia, Honduras, to lands that appear safer. Sometimes these can be journeys where we follow ethically crooked paths, getting lost in a system or culture that exploits or oppresses other people. Sometimes the wilderness can be when we are just exhausted depressed, overcome with grief, or experiencing an emptiness inside ourselves. Sometimes we can just be lost, 
unclear where we are headed. How do we journey through our desert? What is it that we hold on to? What holds us back? How do we respond to repeated disappointment? What do we do when we feel promises are broken? Who do we journey with? And how do we care for each other on this path? How do we keep going? Because we must move forward onward in our desert journeys. And it is only looking back through experience that we may appreciate what we've come through. I'm going to close with these words from Marnie Harmony. If on a starlit, if on a starlit night, with the moon brightly shimmering, we stay inside and do not venture out, the evening universe remains a part of life we shall not know. If on a cloudy day with grayness infusing all and rain dancing rivers in the grass, we stay inside and do not venture out, the stormy, threatening energy of the universe remains a part of life we shall not know. If on a frosty morning, dreading the chilling air before the sunrise, we stay inside and do not venture out, the awesome, cold, quiet, and stillness of the dawn universe remains a part of life we shall not know. If throughout these grace-given days of ours, surrounded as we are by green life and brown death, hot pink joy and cold gray pain and miracles, always miracles, if we stay inside ourselves and do not venture out, then the fullness of the universe shall be unknown to us, and our locked hearts shall never feel that rush of worship. Blessed be.